I think it's easy for us to think, what's the big deal about the Ten Commandments? I mean, they're, they're pretty, pretty simple, right? They're pretty easy rules to follow. I don't understand what the big deal is. In particular, we might think this when, when people come to object to them, when people come to, to see them taken down and taken out of the public square. We might think, I don't understand why you could object to this. It's just ten simple rules. And I'll be honest, I, I have sort of fallen into this. In fact, I, if I'm honest, I sort of fell into that way of thinking when I decided to preach this series. Oh, this will be great. It'll be, it'll be ten weeks reminding people of God's holiness. It'll be easy. I won't have to cover anything really all that hard. <clears throat> and then we got to last week where I got to talk to you about murder And now we get to this week, where I get to talk to you about sex. If you have any problems with this sermon series, blame my wife. She's the one who suggested it. But see, here's the problem. The reason that it gets hard, right, is because because there are implications, there are outworkings of these, of these ten words. That's the decalogue, right? Deca, ten, logos, word. Ten words, the ten commandments, the ten words. There are these outworkings that challenge us deeply. And today is going to be one of those days because, because this commandment, the seventh commandment, is going to address stuff that lies at the very center of our modern cultural sensibilities. Because we have made sex the center of our culture. And so there are going to be two reactions. There might be more than two, but I think there are going to be two main reactions or two main categories that reactions can fall into. One is going to be, don't tell me what to do. Well, I'm going to respond that that is faulty. If you are a believer or you seek to follow God, that is faulty because God always has something to say. But I also promise you this, that I will... Endeavor today to not say anything that scripture is not clear about. The other response, the other category of response could be this. Um, Pastor, we really don't need to talk about this in church. I think maybe that's probably a larger category for many of us who are gathered in the church. And to that I respond to this. It's in the Bible. It's in Scripture that God has given us for teaching and for reproof and correction. And I, for one, am not real big on removing parts of the Bible that I find uncomfortable. And the second part is this. God does talk about it. In fact, there is an entire book that I will not be reading from this morning. But there is an entire book in Scripture that is a treatise on the delight of healthy, godly, sexual relationships between husband and wife. God talks about it. God celebrates it all through Scripture. And so, let us not be bigger prudes on the subject than God is. Let us seek Him and what He has to say about it.
And so, in case you haven't figured out, we're looking at the seventh commandment today. Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 14. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Last week was three words. This week is four. Do not commit adultery. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we open your word and as we delve into a touchy, fraught, uncomfortable subject, I pray that we would approach it with grace, that we would approach it with wisdom, that we would approach it with maturity, but also, God, that we would seek your truth that we would seek what you have to say to us. And so, God, I pray that today the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. So before we really really dive in and, 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 um, and sort of pull out the implications, I think it's important for us to look at what, what these four words actually are all about. I think it's probably pretty clear, I hope it's pretty clear, even on the surface, that this seventh commandment is about both, both marriage and sexual relationships and that by bringing these two together in this commandment that God is showing us that these two are closely connected and we will see how that plays out as we open and unwrap and pull out the implications from this text you know I think it's easy for us to believe or to think that we are living in a, an especially perverse time. I think it's easy for us to think that, that there was never prior to, you know, 1968 or 67. When was the summer of love? 67, right? That's when everybody went to California and everything was great and hunky-dory and everything was wonderful. That prior to that, prior to the sexual revolution, that everybody behaved themselves, and that we never had any issues. Some of you may know that that is not the case. And if you want to know that that's not the case, all you have to do is go back and look at old church documents. This is one of the reasons I love church historians, particularly church historians who really delve into the records of particular congregations. And, and I, I am always sad that when I start reading this stuff that many of these earliest of records from the, from the 18th and 19th century of this congregation have been lost. Because when you go back and you can see and you see what churches and the issues that churches were dealing with, you see that what we are dealing with these days is nothing new. There was a guy a couple of years ago who went back and, and looked at the church records for the church in Geneva, Switzerland. From 1542 to 1609, he wanted to see what the church there was dealing with and that when it was sort of the center and the hotbed for the Reformation in Europe. In that time, about six and a half decades, he saw that about uh, a little less than 1,600 men 
and 777 women were disciplined by the church for issues relating to marriage. So almost twice as many men as women. Actually, more than twice as many men than women. In that same time, they also saw that 636 men and 538 women were disciplined either for adultery or fornication. So if in Geneva, does the center of the Reformation where everything was good and godly and God's word held sway, if there they were dealing with these issues, it should not surprise us. There is no age in which the church or God's people or humanity have not been excluded and have not been, not been excluded from, from the issues of sexual sin, have not been, been able to control fully their desires. And so we, we ask ourselves the question, why? Why look at this? Why is this here? Why does God care about this? Why? And we see that... that Marriage and and sex are two of God's greatest gifts. And as we will see today, that they are also incredibly important to our own spiritual life and our own spiritual health. And so if that's the case, it should not surprise us when people fall and when people fail. Because of course, if these are two of God's greatest gifts, they're the two things that the devil is going to go after the hardest. And so we should expect confusion and pain and misunderstanding and perversion, not because marriage and sex are bad, but because they are good. There's a, there's a trend these days among young people to look at marriage and, and see all of the trouble that can come about a marriage and say, I don't want any of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject it. I'm never going to get married. Because obviously it's bad. The troubles that come about in marriage are because the devil are attacking it because it is good. Not because it is bad. God's best gifts are the ones most likely to be twisted and perverted by the world, by our flesh, and ultimately by the devil. We've been looking on Wednesday night, we've been looking at Revelation, and we've seen how the Antichrist is this twisted perversion, upside-down version of Jesus. Because the greatest gift that God ever gave to us was his son. And so the greatest thing that the devil is going to do is to take that gift and twist it and pervert it and turn it upside down. That's what he does. He's the father of lies. The father of deception. And we all know, if any of us have ever been teenagers trying to get away with anything, the best lie has a kernel of truth in it, right? So this morning... What I'm going to do is I'm actually, I'm going to, just so you are aware, I'm going to sort of borrow a structure from Kevin DeYoung as he was talking about this. And we're going to look at three building blocks of marriage, and then we're going to look at three passages, three Greek words that show the full implication and application of the seventh commandment. So we're going to look at these these biblical blocks of marriage because I think that if we want to understand the seventh commandment, we have to understand marriage and how it is a part of God's design. Because because if we don't understand that, we won't understand the the internal logic in this commandment. 
Now, I want to be very clear. There is much more to be said about Christian marriage than what I'm going to say over the next couple of minutes. But I think we need to start somewhere. So the first thing that we need to understand about Christian marriage, about biblical marriage, this first block that we need to look at is the idea that God has made men and women to complement each other. We might refer to this as complementarity. God made men and women to, to fit. If we look at Genesis 2, we see this. As God is in creation, we see in Genesis 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And so, so God creates all of these animals. And here was the thing. The man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Verse 20. But, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. And so what does God do? God causes Adam to sleep. And then he takes from his very body that which he uses to make woman. He doesn't make another animal or another Adam. He makes a woman. He makes an Eve. And when the man awoke, the man said, this one at last, at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is one will be called woman. For she was taken from man. And then Moses continues as as he's telling us this, adds this little on it. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. See, Eve was made both to be complimented by and to complement Adam. And how she was made, and how she was named, and in how she alone was the, the helper that was corresponding to him. And he for her. They were literally made for each other. And this is why loving commitment is not the only basis for marriage. Now, Marriage should not be less than loving commitment, but it is much more than that as well. Because this idea that man and woman were made for each other, were made to complement each other, were made to make each other complete and whole, and to to come together and make one thing, that is the only consistent moral logic that demands monogamy and exclusivity. Because if you have a loving commitment, within that loving commitment, you can choose to do other things, right? If any of you have watched the TV in the last couple of years, there is a rising trend, something called polyamory. Poly meaning many, amory meaning love. And this is, it is essentially plural marriage reinvented. Different partners sleeping with each other, but all within the confines of a loving commitment. Because that's all that matters, right, is consent. And if my husband consents 
to my sleeping with another man, then that's fine. Or my wife consents with me sleeping with another woman or another man or another whatever. That's all that matters because it's the loving commitment. But when we understand that that God made us man and woman to be together, one man, one woman together, and that it is in that that we become one thing and we become who it is that we were meant to be, that undermines this understanding that anything goes as long as everybody's okay with it. Also, if we were to look back at Genesis 1, the 28th verse, we would see this command from God to be what? To be fruitful and multiply. That can only be done among two things that God has made to complement each other. When I was a kid, we, we had, a, had a, a fruit tree in our yard, and it never bore any fruit. And the reason for that was it needed to cross-pollinate with another tree. And there wasn't another tree like it close enough to cross-pollinate with, because that's the way God made it. God made it for these trees to be next to each other, to cross-pollinate one another, to bear fruit. The only way for us to be fruitful and multiply is within a marriage of a man and a woman. An Adam and an Adam, an Eve or an Eve or any other arrangement does not create the, the ground for fruitfulness and for multiplication. And so it is by understanding that God has made men and women to complement each other, it has only been that that we can begin to understand Genesis 2 one and two. So that's the first building block, that that God has made us for each other. The second is this. The second is kids. So complementarity, kids. I am actually alliterating this week. I'm a real Baptist pastor now. And we look to Malachi, Malachi 2, 13 and 15, We see God is speaking. And he says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them and gladly and receives them gladly from your hands. The, the, the people are in, stand of the, in front of the altar, weeping, pouring themselves out, because God's not accepting them anymore. And Malachi says, and you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is one sinking? Godly offspring. We see here that, that marriage is a covenant. That it's promises made to each other in front of God. We, we, we witness this when we go to a wedding. We just, Audrey and I just went to a wedding. And we got to see two young people stand before family and friends and before God and make vows and promises to each other. And a covenant needs that. The covenant needs the vows, needs the solemn promise. And then there's often with covenant, there is a ratification sign. 
And this would be the, the sealing of marriage by a man and a woman coming together intimately. By the way, I did not know this until recently. This is why we say at the end of a marriage ceremony, you may kiss the bride. It's not because it's cute and it's romantic. It's because that was a public expression of the private act that would seal the covenant. Because we don't, we want that to be public and not the rest of it. So in verse 14, we see that marriage is a covenant. In verse 15, we get this implication, this showing that the purpose and end goal of marriage is godly offspring. Not all marriages will result in biological offspring. That is a fact of our broken world. But marriage cannot be properly defined without reference to the possibility of offspring. Because Scripture shows us over and over and over again women who were not able to have children who had children. The possibility must be there. Because marriage is this covenant, is this institution created by God, oriented toward the birth and raising of children. And we know that. It's why traditionally the state has been involved in marriage. Because we know and Social science research has shown us over and over and over again that whenever possible, the best for kids is to be raised by their biological mother and their biological father in the confines of a marriage. Now, whenever possible, there are always outliers. There are always reasons, good reasons, biblical reasons for that not to be the case. But that is the design. That's the plan from God. So complementarity, kids, the third building block is this, Christ and his church. Ephesians uh, 5 is one of those passages that, that people love or hate, that people read at weddings or demand not be read at their weddings. It's the one that starts with those phrases that makes us very uncomfortable in the 21st century. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Because Paul continues, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then he jumps down and he talks about this to husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, making her holy and cleansing her, meaning the church, with the washing water by the word. Paul continues, but then when he gets to verse 31, he says this. He quotes, he goes back and he quotes Genesis and he says, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery, Paul says, is profound. And I am think, talking about Christ and the church. See, there is this connection between our marriages here and the marriage of Christ and his church. And it is a mystery. Paul is very clear about that. There is an aspect of that that we don't fully understand. 
But we do understand that the church was made for Christ just as woman was made for man. We see that all over Scripture, God describes the unfaithfulness of His people in terms like marital unfaithfulness. Go back, read the book of Hosea. Over and over and over again, when God is describing the unfaithfulness of His people, He looks to the unfaithfulness of spouses one to another. Our marriages here are a sign that points to the marriage of Christ and His church. So, if you think that maybe your marriage is not worth working on, be thinking about the fact that it is to the world a representative and a symbol and a sign of the marriage between God and his people. So these are the building blocks of a biblical marriage, a relationship of sexual complementarity which could produce children, between a husband and a wife showing faith in the mystery of Christ and his church. So, when we talk about marriage, as we do here in the seventh commandment, this is the kind of marriage we're talking about. This is the kind of marriage that God asks for. And when we get these building blocks in place, we see that this makes sense. That the, the, the seventh commandment makes sense beyond just divine fiat. We're going to do it because God told us to. But we begin to see that there is a logic at play in God's design. That this moral logic renders every kind of adultery, fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, any sexual relationship outside of one man, one woman, within the covenant of marriage as a violation of God's design. And so, we turn to the second group of three. We turn to these three Greek words, these three passages showing this application of the seventh commandment. And we begin to see that the seventh commandment forbids more than just not cheating on your spouse. So the first word, this first Greek word, is the word pornea. P-O-R-N-I-E-I-A. Pornea. Obviously, that's not how it's actually spelled in Greek. That's the spelling of the transliteration. What is it? Pi, Omicron, Rho. Anyway. We turn to Mark, to these words of Jesus. For from within, from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So that word sexual immoralities, that's how it's translated here in the CSB. The, that word, the Greek word behind sexual immoralities is this word pornea. It's, as you might guess, the word from which we get our word pornography. It's, it's a broad term reflecting any sexual sin that is prohibited by the law of Moses. 
And so in using this word, Jesus is forbidding every kind of sexual deviation from the created order. You know, one of the the, the common remarks that you hear these days is, well, Jesus didn't talk about X, Y, or Z. Oftentimes he did, we just don't know Greek. So what we see here from Jesus, from Jesus himself, is that the seventh commandment covers a multitude of sexual sins. The second Greek word, the second passage, is going to be First uh, Timothy, and the word is arsenkoites. Arsenkoites. First Timothy one eighteen through uh, eight, excuse me, eight through eleven. But we know that the law is good. Provided one uses it legitimately. Paul's very concerned, of course, on the use of the law. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. For these people, because it will point them toward God's holiness. And then he he has this list. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. So Paul's looking at the law, he's talking to Timothy, and he's saying, this is what the law is for. The law is to remind people of their need for Jesus. The law is not a method by which we achieve salvation. The law is the method by which we can become aware of our need for it. And so if you notice there, he sort of goes through the second table of the law. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. I cannot think of a better way to dishonor your father and mother than to kill them. Right? So fifth commandment. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit murder. What's next? For murderers. So he's talking about murdering father and mothers, but then he pulls out murderers. Right? So we've got the fifth commandment, we've got the sixth commandment. We're going to jump the seventh commandment here for a second. The eighth commandment, for slave traders, what does that conf- correlate to? Man stealing. That's, that's the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And the, the worst thing that you can steal is another human being. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, right? Liars and perjurers. Let's come back to the very beginning of verse 10 where he, where he covers... This seventh commandment. For the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males. So sexual immorality there, the, the, for, the, for the sexually immoral, it, it, the word he uses there is pornois. Basically the same word we just looked at. But then there's the second word, arsenkoites. Which seems to be a word that Paul made up. It's nowhere else in Greek prior to finding it in Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he uses it in 1 Corinthians, and then he uses it here. And I think that what Paul's doing is he's presaging the Germans. Have you all ever seen these crazy long German words where they just smash a bunch of words together to create an idea? This is a very German thing, if you know German at all. It's, it's, they, they're constantly creating new words by taking words and smashing them together. And that's what Paul has done here. He's taken two Greek words, arson, which is a Greek word for, for man, and koites, which is a Greek word for bed, and shoved them together, man bed. And there's an echo here of Leviticus 18 and 20. 
And so, so Paul has, has addressing, sees this problem in the culture around him, and it was an issue in the culture around him, and he wants to address it, but there's not a good word for it, because in Greek culture, it's perfectly accepted, so there's no word for it. So he smashes two Greek words together to create a new word, manbed. And it shows a, a blanket disapproval of same-sex activity. The third word, the third passage, is this word apithemo. We find it in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So the word that's translated there is lustfully. is this word epithumo. It means to desire, to covet, to, to long for. Now, noticing someone of the opposite sex, or perhaps even of the same sex, is an attractive person that was made by God to be attractive, that is not a sin. The sin goes when we move from recognition to desire and coveting and longing and lust. And what what Jesus is saying, Jesus is doing this inside-outside game, right? The outside thing is don't commit adultery. The inside thing is the status of your heart, that adultery and sexual sin is a matter of the heart. Jesus is telling us that when we epithumo, we're, we're, we're turning that other person into an object, into a commodity, into a thing. They've stopped being a person and become something for us to possess. And when we do that, we deny them their humanity. We deny them their imago dei, the the image of God that is carried in them. And so we see that through the look at these three words, we see that the seventh commandment has broad application in the New Testament. That it applies to sex before marriage, to pornography, to homosexuality, to marriage fidelity, and to lust in the heart. Now here is an uncomfortable truth. There is not an adult present this morning who fully escapes Jesus' words here in Matthew. No one is in the clear when it comes to the seventh commandment. And so what do we do? If we all stand condemned, what do we do? You all know the story of David and Bathsheba. The end of that story, Nathan comes to David. David can't see his own sin. And so Nathan tells him a a story, a parable, to get David to see his own sin. And so David condemns the man that is the stand-in for him in in the parable. And Nathan looks at him and he points his finger at him and he says, You are that man. And then for the first time in the entire sordid affair, David does the right thing. 
he repents. He begs God for forgiveness. We see some of this. We're able to read this in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after the prophet Nathan came to him. He starts with this cry for forgiveness. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from sin. David runs to God, begs God for forgiveness. And then we see a little later in verse 7 and surrounding that, that David knows that this plea for forgiveness is based on sacrifice that has been made for him. And then he prays for God's ongoing work of sanctification in his life. Verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. We see in Psalm 51 this beautiful expression of running to God for forgiveness. Now here's the deal. David still has to suffer the consequences of his sin. But he is forgiven and he does not die. When we are confronted by our sin, whether it is sexual sin or any sin, we ought to be like David. And the rest of the story of David and Bathsheba be be the opposite of David. But here at the end, be like David. We ought to run back to God. We ought to run back to the cross and confess our sin. Because it's at the cross that we find the sacrifice for our sin. It is at the cross that we can be cleansed of our guilt. It is, it is at the cross that we can find the power in the blood to live again for Christ. And so when God confronts us, when God sends us a Nathan, and may God send Nathans into all of our lives. But when God confronts us, we have a choice. We can keep on hiding our sin. We can keep on thinking that nobody notices, that we're going to keep it hidden away. We're not going to confess it. We're not going to purge it. We're not going to bring it out into the light. And, <coughs> and that will destroy us. Or we can confess to a loving God who will have mercy on us. One of my favorite pastors is a preacher, is a man who preached in London in the mid-20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. As he was concluding his sermon on adultery, he said this, Every adultery, even adultery, is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin. But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I can assure you of pardon. It is here at the foot of the cross that we can receive forgiveness 
and that we can receive assurance of pardon. But let us not forget the words that Jesus spoke to the woman after he had forgiven her and as he was sending her on her way. Go and sin no more. I have no idea what our hymn of invitation is going to be. I'm not in charge these days.